seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Again, this is part 2. So much of this will be very quick. We'll just try to get, we're trying to get to verse 5 so we can finish out this passage today. Revelation chapter 2. Church at Ephesus, the lost love church, the church that had just a great passion and love for Christ, who apparently had, it had decreased, That's, that was the Lord's comment to the church. As one man wrote, imagine a congregation with a vital commitment to Christ, growing stagnant and indifferent. Isn't that sad? Isn't it sad the fact that a a body of believers could be on fire for Christ, but over time become stagnant and indifferent. Perhaps it remains doctrinally orthodox, evangelistically active even, and socially responsible, but its orthodoxy and its activities are no longer maintained out of a deep devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's really where we find Ephesus. If you're in there, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. A lost love church. A church that had been on fire for the Lord, but who had lost it. Over time, over time, and we're going to see that all laid out here for us in the next few moments. Now again, we're looking at seven churches. I just want to remind you of this simple thing. Uh, the, the pastor that had been at this church was John himself. Tradition says he probably was there for more than two decades. For more than two decades, the apostle, John the Apostle, had ministered in this church, church at Ephesus. Now, from that influence, six other churches were also planted. Kind of like what we just heard about in Ghana. One church, now then, and you plant churches around that one church, Okay. And if you, just again, for reminder, you have all these churches. Do you happen to have that one, one map? Um, just the map, the map I gave. Uh, one more. And again, this is the Mediterranean. This is Israel over here. And you see, and, and John is on an island of Patmos right here. And Ephesus is a port city right there. And then from there, Smyrna. And it's basically a... a uh, the road, the postal system even, there were seven main 
postal uh, stops, which are each of the seven churches, which allowed the letters to get around. And again, we're just studying about this one. Now, these were actual churches at the time of the writing. Again, Christ through John is writing specifically to an actual church. That's important. Some have said, well, it wasn't an actual church. No, an actual church. But also, these churches also represent all churches that are represented throughout uh, the church age. In other words, you can find the, uh, the loveless church throughout church history. You can find the suffering church, like Smyrna, throughout church history. So each of these churches represent other churches that you can also find. Uh, and that's why it's so instructive for us. That's why we're taking our time, by the way. Uh, I could do the whole message. I could, I could cover all seven churches in one message. It might take ten hours, but we could do it. But... <laughs> But these represent real churches then, but also churches that have, have existed in the church age. Okay? Now again, John at this time of writing is around 90 years old. Like I said, he's been there for a number of years. These churches have been in existence for about 40 years. They began around A.D. 55, now it's around A.D. 95, about 40 years. They've been around for about 40 years, which means... The first generation, pretty much of all of them, have passed off the scene. And really what John is uh, speaking to, communicating to, are the second and third generation. The second and third generation Christians are the ones that these letters are being written to. So again, seven churches, also representing all churches at all times and all places during the church history. Well, let's just break it down, this, these seven verses. First of all, you have um, the commission to the angel of the church at Ephesus. And again, as we said last week, the angel are the stars of chapter 1, verse 20, which are in Christ's hands, and they are referring to not angels, but to a person, and I believe it's to the, the, uh, the pastor, the teaching elder. I say that because it's singular, to the angel, not angels. So though there are plurality of elders in each church, that's very biblical, Acts 20, 1 Peter 5. Here Christ, through John, is talking specifically to the, the teaching elder, the one who is communicating regularly the word of God to the congregation. So that's the commission to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Now again, this was a heavily blessed church. This first church was like the mother church, the hub church. They had seen such great preachers as Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos. Paul himself had been there for three years. Timothy had ministered there. You know, first, second Timothy. Pastor Timothy had ministered there for at least a year and a half. And, Paul, or, and uh, John, most likely, to a couple decades. A very blessed church when it comes to men in the pulpit, as it were. And yet, again, they have an issue. So that's the commission to the angel. The city of Ephesus... It was considered a miniature Rome. It was that powerful, it was that uh, popular, it was that economically stable. It was a free city. Most cities in that time were not free, but Ephesus was. It was, again, a port city, commerce, very wealthy. They had self-rule. They had the annual games. It was one of the three major cities of that time, along with Antioch and Alexandria. So, I mean, you, just, you know, it's the New York City of that, that time, as it were. Economically very strong. It was by far the most important city of Asia Minor, that whole hub right there. Ah, oh, he's not there. 
But again, religiously, they, it housed the temple of Diana. Uh, very immoral, very ungodly. Um, back then, they had religious prostitutes. And so you can just imagine all the debauchery that was going on. And yet, uh, it was one of the, the temple itself was so massive, it was considered the best, one of the seven wonders of the world, but the highest of the seven wonders. In other words, that was considered the premier of the seven wonders of the world. That's, and obviously, they had a lot of, uh, the people of Ephesus had a lot of pride in their, in their, uh, in their temple in their God, and that's why there was a riot in Acts 19 when Paul comes along in the gospel and all of a sudden people are losing their economics, people are losing their prestige for Diana. So again, religiously it was up there and then geographically, it just they had upwards to a half a million people for any city, that's huge, back in that day and age. They estimate between a quarter and a half a million people. So again, you just kind of get a just a, 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 a feeling, you know. And, and the gospel invades this dark, immoral, ungodly area. The correspondent, again, second part of verse 1, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. That's Christ. And the word holds has to do with this. Authority. Authority. Divine authority, divine control. Not only that, I said last week, I, I wasn't sure for about protection, but I, I've, as I've thought about it, now it, it also means protection. In other words, Christ says it this way. I mean, this is what it means. He holds the seven stars. You're mine. I have authority over you. And whatever I want to happen to you will, but whatever I don't want to have happen to you won't. That's protection. And I think in this day and age, as we live in a very unsettled world, we have to remember that Christ holds us, right? We are secure in Him. We are absolutely secure in Him. Look at the fourth part, fourth part the, uh, the commendation. Commendation, not condemnation, commendation. I know, I know your works. By the way, wouldn't you love to be in a church like this? I mean... I, I, I almost wish verse 5 wasn't there. I, I only say that because, I mean, you start reading verse 4, it's like, Wow! Or, excuse me, verses 2 and 3. Excuse me. I mean, wow. And that word know is, is the word that means I have complete knowledge. It's not like he's growing in the knowledge. I have complete knowledge of your works. I mean, look at, look at, these, look at how this church had ministered. I mean, they had persevering service. Your labor. That word labor means the point of, of sweat and exhaustion. These people were laborers for Christ. Laboring, laboring, laboring. And then they also had um, spiritual discernment and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. They couldn't tolerate them, New American says. They've tested. They found them to be liars. You know? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, I think there's a problem here. It's another thing to be able to test them and say, this is what the problem is biblically. They were, they were astute when it came to biblical doctrine. Which just, let me remind you of this. It is always good to test the spirits, right? In the sense of, if someone comes along proclaiming Christ, it's good to say, what? Let's see if you line up biblically. We live in a tolerant society, right? We live in a society that says you should not question anybody's. In fact, the, the idea is this. If they're genuine, no. If they're sincere, 
then, th- then that basically gives them the pass. You, you could be t- totally sincerely wrong. So, so we've, got to, we've got to take an admonition here that we've got to be willing to have spiritual discernment. 1 John 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because there are many false prophets going on in the world. Test the spirits. Discernment. They had hatred for those who were immoral, the Nicolaitans. That's found in verse 6. And also they persevered. They had patience and labored, verse 3. By the way, he used the same words in verse 3 as he had just talked about in verse 2. Those are the same exact words. Persevered, persevered, patience, labored. Same Greek words. Except now he adds this. For my name's sake. See, you didn't do it for yourself. You did it for me. And you haven't grown weary. It's one thing to be persevering, but you could be persevering and you're just about ready to quit. And they weren't like that. They were persevering and they were, this is for Jesus. I mean, this is a very committed uh, group of people, body of Christ. I mean, they were running the race like 1 Corinthians 9 talks about. They were pressing on to the prize, like Philippians 3. And yet, there's a confrontation. There's a, a, a reproof that needs to be given. I, I think of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? What's the next word? Doctrine. That sets the foundation. And for reproof. Because when it comes to the word of God, there's times that a person needs to be reproved. It's not what we like, right? We always like to be just encouraged. Just tell me I'm doing a great job. Well, he has told them they're doing a good job, right? The commendation. Four specific things. This, this, this. I know. And by the way, when he says I know, it's not like when your mother tells you that she knows. Because she's looking for the best. You know? No. I know. But now he says, but nevertheless, verse 4. I have this against you. Doesn't that pierce your soul? Man, Lord, I'm running for you. I'm wanting to serve you. I'm wanting to do good. What I find encouraging is, I know. I know where you're at. I look at my own life, my own failures. I know where you're at, John. I know where you're at. I know. I know what you're doing right. I know what I could commend you for. I, I know what I, I could reward you for. Isn't that encouraging? That is encouraging to me. That God knows. God knows our heart. God knows where you are victorious. Okay? The Lord Jesus Christ knows where you are winning the battle. But here he's now going to point out where, where they're not doing this so well. Where they're losing. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left, you have left your first love. It's interesting, that's in the punctiliar aorist, uh, in the sense that it's, it's almost like there was a point in time where you started moving away, okay? You left your first love. This is in the emphatic form, your first love you have left. You know, when it comes to love, this church had had a strong love. Again, Paul wrote to this church uh, 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 30 years previous. You know, the church, uh, the, uh, the letter to the Ephesians. 
And this is what he said in the, in the letter to the Ephesians. He wrote this in chapter 1, verse 15. Therefore, I also, this is Paul writing to the church, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love for all the saints. I mean, Paul had commended them for their faith in Christ, their love for the saints. And, and he went on, by the way, in, in a number of spots and commended them. Chapter 3, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge, and that you might be filled with the fullness of God. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the young church at that point. They had only been around for a few years. And not only was commending them, but was uh, encouraging them to continue to grow. And, and apparently they had. They had had that first love. That's why Jesus would be able to say, you left it, you had it. You had it. But apparently the Ephesians, and I, and I, I asked myself this, and could it be said of the Alfred Almanites? <laughs> the ones at Alfred Alman Bible Church. Could this be said of us that at one time we had a passionate love, but it became peripheral and external. That's what I keep asking myself. Ever since I started studying these seven churches, I keep saying, Lord, is this me? Is this us? Are we like the Ephesus church? Are we like the Pergamos church? Are we like the Smyrna church? God forbid that we be like the Laodicean church. Lord, show us. Lord, make me sensitive. Have I left my first love? Am I in danger of leaving my first love? Let me explain to you, because again, we didn't get to any of this last week, but um, let's go back into the Gospel of John and look at some of the, the there's three different uh, loves that are found in, in the Gospel of John. Now again, remember, John the Apostle wrote what? What did he write? He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. I think we just have to remember that. He, we're, we're looking at this man, what he wrote, okay? So let's look at the Gospel of John and determine, because, see, I kept asking this question, what do you mean you left your first love? Could you give me a little bit more, <laughs> okay? Could you just give me a little bit more of what that means? What does it look like? Because I don't know if I have. Oh, I love Jesus, there's no question. But the question is, have I left my priority love? That's the question. So let me give you three directions of love. First of all, you have the upward love. If you're in Gospel of John, this is our love that we have for God. So, see, this is a way to evaluate your love for Jesus. Well, first of all, the Gospel of John talks about upward love. The priority love. Again, Matthew, the greatest of all commandments is what? Love the Lord your God with what? Oh, your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the key is all. But in John chapter 14, verse 15, it says this. If you love me, you will, what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, you'll keep my commandments not because of fear of what I might do to you or disgrace or to keep your position in the church. You will obey me out of just pure love for me. 
That's upward love. I think this is exhibited and seen in my thirst for the word. See, if, if I know that I have to keep his commandments, then I've got to know what his commandments are, and that means I want to get into his word. My thirst for the word. That's why the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my, what? Meditation all the day. It's my meditation. Oh, how I love your law. Upward love is seen through my obedience. It is seen, seen because I get into the Word of God. It's my thirst for the Word. Also, it's, it's my worship of the God of the Word. Psalmist 73, whom, I have, whom have I in heaven but thee? <laughs> it's like everybody else is on the table. You're the only one that really shine, and you're the only one that really matters. And prayer. See, my love for the Lord is seen by my thirst for the Word, the worship of God, and my prayer to Him. And apparently, the Ephesians, their time in worship and prayer and the Word had suffered. It is also observed in our obedience. That's what the verse John 14 is referring to. Love for God and obedience to Him are inseparable. If I didn't put that on your outline, you really need to have that. Love for the word, excuse me, love for God and obedience to him through his word are inseparable. We're not talking about a love that is ushy-gushy, sentimental, emotional. We are talking about a love that is willing to say, if this is what God wants for my life, then I will do it. Boy, that's hard. That is so easy to speak. That is so difficult to do. But you've got to look at your life and say, Lord, am I following you? Am I walking with you? Or am I trying to get a love that just is emotional? And, and this is such an important theme that if you're in John 14, go to verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he says the same thing in verse 23. So again, this upward love is seen by my thirst for the word, thirst for prayer, thirst for worship. It is seen by my thirst for obedience. And I think it's also how you relate to each other. See, it's lived out in every part of our being. That's why Jesus in Matthew 10 says this, He who loves father and mother, father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is very clear. All other relationships are secondary. And you know what? As I look at the church of Jesus Christ in America... And many times even here, I don't, we don't see that. I, I, I've told you many times, I, I think it's very unfortunate, unfortunate that many times our priority is focus on the family. And I don't mean that as far as James Dobson. I am just saying there have been statements made over the last 30 years where, well, if it's, you know, I've got to do it because it's my children. I do believe that your priority should be your family, but that's only second priority over Christ himself, Right? And sometimes I think we make our children God, actually God. You've got to love Christ more than everyone else. That's not natural, that's supernatural. So that's upward love. How about inward love? See, again, we're trying to figure out this first love that they lost, inward love. Again, that's towards my brethren. 
It's got to be sacrificial. John 13 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And I believe this, over the 30, 40 years that Ephesus church had been there, apparently their, their love of the brethren had also faltered. See, these go hand in hand. When, when I lose my thirst for the word and desire for obedience and priority that Christ is, then the people around me becomes, become objects to be used for my person versus that I'm serving. See, we need to, have, we need to return to community over individual love. Uh, we need to be willing to sacrifice for the welfare of others. We need to have commitment to community. By the way, that's what membership is all about. Membership is really saying this, uh, I need you, and I'm going to be committed to you. I, I always liked how Dan Kenyon used to say, you know, if you love the girl, marry her. Well, I mean, it's nice to date a girl, but there comes a point in time in saying, am I going to be committed to her? You know, we're not going to live together, we're going to be get married, right? Well, when it comes to membership, isn't that what it is? I think this is a great group. It's good to date. It's nice to be with them periodically. No, I want to be committed to them. You know, sacrifice is seen in the first church. Acts chapter 2. Look at, it. Look at the sacrifice that the first church had towards each other. Uh, Acts chapter 2. Unbelievable sacrifice. Acts 2.42. And with many words, excuse me, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of the bread and prayers. Again, they were together all the time. They were listening to the word. They were obeying the word. They were fellowshipping with one another. But look at the out, outpouring of that. What, what happened because of that? Verse 43, then fear came upon every soul and many wonders, wonderful signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and, and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Wow. They were willing to sacrifice what they had for another. And you say, well, maybe that was just an anomaly. Well, look at verse, chapter 4, verse 32. Chapter 4, 32. The multitude believed and were of one heart, one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they all had things all in common, and with great power, by the way, with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and of great grace was upon them. And you might say, well, how great was the grace? Well, look at verse 36. Barnabas had a piece of land and sold it, and gave it for the welfare of the others. By the way, this is not communism. Communism says this, what you have I'm going to take. This is love. <laughs> this is grace. Because what it is, it says, this is mine, but I'm willing to give. There's no mandate here. The only reason I, uh, Ananias, and, no, not, um, Ananias and Sapphira, isn't it interesting, by the way, chapter 4 comes just before chapter 5? No, isn't that really? I wish they didn't have a divider. Because you hear of the, the, will, uh, the giving of Barnabas, and sometimes we forget chapter 5 just starts the next Part of the letter. See, there was this other two people, what? They, they wanted to give, but they did it for accolades. That's why God struck them dead. No, this is not communism. This is just love for the brethren. 
When Jesus says you've left your first love, I, th- I really believe, see, I've been trying to piece this together. Apparently their passionate desire to follow Christ had, had decreased, and you could see it through their, their desire for the word and prayer and worship and, and obedience, but also apparently their love for each other wasn't sacrificial. As one commentator said, a loss of this type of love focuses on church buildings and programs rather than on the most important, which is body life of the church. It's good to have a building. It's good to have programs. But what it's, you know what the church is really about? Us. Us ministering to us. And then finally, outward love. Outward love. So you have upward love, inward love, outward love. Outward love is when we go to the unsaved. John 20, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Many times our lack of passionate love for Christ is seen in how we deal with those who are unbelievers. We disregard them. We ignore them. We do not reach out to them. And yet Christ said as As the Father sent me, I send you. The Father loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in him, what? Should not perish, but have everlasting life. God cared so much, he gave. He sacrificed his his Son. Giving, giving. That's what we've been talking about, giving. question is, are you a giver? When was the last time you sacrificed? When was the last time you sacrificed and said no to sin so that you would honor Christ? When was the last time you sacrificed your time, energy, giftedness, ability for your brothers and sisters in Christ? When was the last time that you sacrificed and and took the step of faith and, and with boldness to present the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to someone who is unsaved? Those are all indicators of whether or not you are abiding in first love or have left your first love. By the way, isn't this a great time to get this settled in our hearts just before we come to the communion? Really, really good time. Man's greatest need, man's greatest need is forgiveness through Christ. By the way, and I don't know where you are. I I don't want to just assume you're all believers. You might be here right now and you're religious, you come to church once in a while, maybe you come all the time. But the question is, have you ever reckoned with your sin? Seen yourself as a sinner and condemned before God because he is holy. And recognize that only Christ, only the perfect son of God, had the ability to come, live a perfect life, die a perfect death, and did it not for his sake, but for yours. That he came for me. He came to be my sacrifice on the cross. He's, he's my substitute. Have you ever received Christ as your substitute? Have you ever received him? For as many as received him, to them God gave the right to become what? Children of God. It's not about going to church and memorizing verses or doing devotions. It's about your relationship with Jesus Christ, recognizing that you are a sinner without hope, and yet Christ came to die in your place, and when you receive him, that's hope. (laughs) By the way, that's what we're going to be remembering, all that Christ did, not just coming, but then drawing us to himself. 
drawing himself to himself, uh, us to himself. See, the Ephesian uh, church needed the, to, to be broken over the lostness and hellbound future of a Christless world. Apparently, that had also fallen, also had failed. Now, again, I'm just giving you indicators, but I think they're very good indicators for us. I've had to, am I this? Or do we just, see, because when you move through life, you are, many times you're so passionate about Christ when you first get saved. I mean, you have just reckoned with the fact that you were damned and God gave you forgiveness. And just, like, I just want to tell somebody. But then as time goes on, what creeps in is other idols, other things. You become sometimes very selfish. Not always. Not always. It shouldn't happen that way. I like what John Piper says. The weakness of our love for God or our hunger for God is not because he is unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. That might be a question to ask. Am I, am I being stuffed with other things and therefore my hunger for God has become not as great? It's kind of like, you know, I, I always, like think of it like Thanksgiving. What if before, th- you know, usually Thanksgiving by the time the turkey is out is about 1, 2 o'clock, right? What if before that turkey comes out and you have potatoes and, you know, stuffing and, and squash and what else? Oh, I, I love the red stuff. What is that? Oh, cranberry sauce. Oh, my mother makes it the best way with, you know, like nuts and, uh, and uh, celery and all this other stuff in it. <clears throat> but what if before that, would you call that a good spread, by the way? Real good, right? On top of pumpkin pie. But what if, for some reason, your grandmother shows up with like three bags of candy and the kids are like hoofing that in at 10 o'clock a.m. And by the time the turkey comes out, they're like, I just feel sick. You would say, you know what, that is really pathetic. That great meal and now you've stuffed yourself with something else. I think we get enamored by the world. We are stuffing ourselves with the candy of the world and, and, the, and the real hope and peace and joy and savoriness, I guess if you would say, of Christ, it just kind of diminishes. We've got to get back to our first love, right? Two more things. The correction. The correction. I love the Lord. I love the Lord for so many reasons, one of which is he corrects us. Oh, Getting back to 2 Timothy. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. That's, hey, you're in the ditch. And for correction. Really just following along this passage. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember. In fact, there's three R's here. Actually, four. Remember, repent, do the first works, which you could say redo, or else I will remove. If you want to get back to first love, these are the things, these are the steps. I mean, this is, this is a great counseling model, quite honestly. This, by the way, is also the counseling model that you see in the other six churches. You don't see all the specific words, but the same concept is being accomplished. First of all, remember that's present tense. That means call to mind. 
uh, again, we're talking to second, third generation Christians. Remember, now for them, some of that wasn't even, you know, they don't remember when uh, the church first started. But he's just saying, go back to the moment when you first knew me. When you first walked. When you were walking with passion. When you were walking with holy desire. Remember the time, these are other things, how it can grow cold. By the way, growing cold is often gradual. We don't fall off the wagon. Many times it's little steps. Oh, there was time I used to be in the Word. There was time that I was praying passionately. I mean, I was on pursuit. But then, you know, I get tired and I wanted to sleep in and things happen. And oh, there was all these pressures and I went on vacation and it just hasn't been the same since. No, no, no. Remember. In fact, I think these first three words, remember, repent, and return, are also found in another passage, and they play it out exactly. That's Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. I think that's the word remember. We have this cloud of witnesses. By the way, the witnesses are not looking at us. We're looking at them. We're looking at the life of David and we're learning many things from David. Some of which are like, I don't want to go down that path. Abraham, the Apostle John, the Apostle James. See, that's, when you say remember, I'm not just saying remember your own life. Remember what the saints have done that have gone before us. Even saints of, of today. Look at uh, Martin Luther. Um, Charles Colson, Tom White, uh, John MacArthur, Lee Ryan, Nate Edwards. There's a lot of cloud of witnesses. Remember, look at their lives. By the way, not every one of them that I mentioned, some of which you didn't even know who they were, didn't end well. Actually, one of them committed suicide. But the reality is, remember from where you have fallen. And part of that remembering is even the people that are around us. And then number two, repent. Repent means change your mind. It, it is literally this. Change your mind, change your attitude, change your direction. Repent. Realize that the direction you're going and you don't want to go. Lord, you've convicted me. I want to go in a new direction. Repent. I think that's the second part of Hebrews 12. Not only do we have a cloud of witnesses, but it says this, lay aside every encumbrance, that's weights, and every sin. The the sins are obvious. I'll tell you what the encumbrances are. Those are not so obvious in our life. The encumbrances, the weights, are all the things that just drag us down. They're not sinful necessarily, but they're all the candy before the big meal at 2 o'clock. And we can stuff ourselves in America with a lot of candy. Facebook in, constantly doing this. You know, what's the next movie? What's the next? You'll stuff yourself with candy, and when the really good stuff is served, you'll be like, I don't feel that good. And look at the next one. Return. Do the first works. It's never too late to start. And that's what Hebrews 12 after he says every, all the sins which so easily entangle, so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That word, looking, it means to turn the eyes, 
and fix them on Christ. Fix them. Fix them on Christ. Lord, have I lost my first love? We need to see the great cloud of witnesses and remember that they, they walked, they ran well, they finished strong. Many of them did, some of them didn't. Got to learn from those too. Not only that, we have to repent. Repent of the entanglements of this world. <laughs> the sins that so easily us entangle. Oh, there's sins, there's weights. And return. Do the first works. Notice he didn't say do the first attitudes. Do the first works. Do the first works. Do them out of, for glory for me. And then finally, if you don't, I'm going to remove your candlestick. I'm going to remove your witness. I'm going to remove your testimony. And the point is this. The continued blessing of God on an individual, on a leader, on a pastor... In the context, it's on a church. The continued blessing of God on this church is not guaranteed. Isn't that scary? That's very disheartening in one sense. That we may, if the Lord tarries and the government doesn't shut us down, we may be here 10, 15, 5, one year from now, and God would say, you know what, you no longer have a lampstand. No, we've got to be dead on serious about our sin Walking with him. Remember, repent, redo. And if you do, look at this. This is the encouragement. This is to the individual. By the way, this is not so much to the church as the individual. He goes from the church council, verse 5, to the individual to verse 7. And let him, he who has an ear to hear, let him, uh, what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, that's the individual, I'll give, to, I'll give him to eat from the tree of life. And the paradise of God. And that's heaven. Tree of life. Remember, Adam was told not to eat because he would have lived in perpetual wickedness. But to those who are in the second Adam, Christ, we're given the opportunity. See, what he's saying is this. The overcomers. And that was used of victorious soldiers. That word overcomer, victorious soldiers. That word overcomer is not to the super saint. I want you to get this. That is to actually every believer. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God will ultimately make you an overcomer. But he, he's promising, he's saying, listen, there's going to be a lot of hard things. There's going to be things you have to give up to not be entangled. You're going to have to give up your sin. But let me tell you, you know what the, what the encouragement is? You get to eat of the tree of life. You get to be in the paradise, which is heaven. Paradise of God, where God is. At the, at the end of each one of these letters, no matter whether it's compromise or sin or lukewarmness, he gives an encouragement to the person that's willing to run well. Actually, just run to the finish. And he says, if you're an overcomer, this is the blessing. If you're a victorious soldier, this is the blessing. I need that. See, because if you're going to run well with Christ, you're going to have to give up things. And you know what God says? It's like this. Run well, because I'll tell you what you're going to get in the end. You're going to be an overcomer. Now, we know out of Philippians 1, verse 6, we are confident of this very thing, what? That he who has begun a good work in us, what? We'll finish it out to the day of Christ. But even though that is absolutely true, he's telling us, but I want you to run. I want you to be the overcomer. So again, I trust that you... 
One, have it been evaluating your life? Do you have a love for Christ? Do you have a passionate zeal for just worship and getting into his word and obeying his word? Is that part of your life? And does that spill out in your sacrifice to others, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ? Also, to those around us in the world? Or have you left your first love? If you've left it, how do you get back? Lord, I remember. I repent, and I want to get back to where I was. Lord, I can't do it on my own. I'm completely at your mercy, but Lord, I know that you want me to be an overcomer, and I give my life to you. By the way, it's not a small, it is actually, in one one sense, a small thing to give our lives to the one who actually created us, redeemed us, protects us, right? It's really a small sacrifice. My life is not my own. It's his. But again, he wants you to commit your life to him. And as we go before the table, that's what he's asking. Don't come before the table in an unworthy manner. Don't come knowing, I don't have a first love for you. That's sinning. It'd be better for you to say, I can't take communion right now. I've got to think about this. But if your heart is committed to Christ, and yes, you are my priority love, then we join together to worship him, right? Let's bow our heads, prepare your hearts, and ushers come forward.